Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales Canberra campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Throughout its history, the Royal Australian Navy has, when needed, rendered assistance to mariners in peril at sea. One of the most memorable and hazardous of these instances was the rescue of yachtsmen during the 1998 Sydney to Hobart yacht race, where, in all, 55 sailors were rescued in the largest peacetime maritime rescue in Australian history. 35 military and civilian aircraft, as well as the frigate HMAS Newcastle, were involved. Tragically, despite these efforts, six lives were lost. To discuss these dramatic events, I am indeed fortunate to be joined today by an expert panel who, in this time of coronavirus, are phoning in from all over Australia. They are Mr John Steamer Stanley, an experienced yachtsman who by 1998 had taken part in 16 Sydney to Hobart yacht races, as well as the Admiral's Cup and the America's Cup. He was a crew member of the race's oldest vessel, the Winston Churchill, during this race. Commander Tansy Lee, who was the aircraft captain of the Sea King helicopter Shark 2-0 of 817 Squadron. Tansy had a previous career in the Royal Navy and had taken part in the equally dramatic rescues during this 1979 Fastnet race. Commander Rick Neville, who was the flight commander of HMAS Melbourne's Seahawk helicopter Tiger 7-5. Warren Officer Shane Pashley, at the time a helicopter air crewman, who had also been involved in the 1997 rescue of French sailor Isabelle Ortissier from her disabled yacht deep in the Southern Ocean. In 1998, he was the air crewman in Tiger 7-5. And Lieutenant Nick Trimmer, who was the pilot of Tiger 7-5. Welcome to you all. First off, John Stanley, the 630 nautical mile Sydney to Hobart yacht race is renowned as one of the toughest ocean races in the world. As you prepared for the 1998 race, were there any predictions as to a particularly rough passage that you might be expecting this time around? Um, to, a, to a point where they did issue a, a gale warning, um, which is normal for Bass Strait. You're always expecting one or two fronts to come through during that passage. Um, that evening, they went up to a storm warning. And, you know, to sailors, a storm warning, well, that's up to 55 knots, basically. But at the end of the day, sadly, we ended up in a hurricane and no one had forecast that. So if you uh, hadn't have got out of there by nine o'clock on that morning of when that really started to come up, you, you were in the thick of it. Uh, sadly. So those conditions, uh, hopefully uh, one in a hundred is uh, one of the old uh, naval architects uh, did talk about previously, uh, did eventuate and that was the result. Tansy Lee, 115 yachts started the race with a 25 to 35 knot northeasterly pushing them along, possibly a race record for the number of participants. Can you briefly Tell us what the search and rescue organisation and resources were that were planned just in case anything should go wrong in the race? I'm not particularly aware that there was any specific um, search and rescue uh, organisations uh, ready. What In the Navy, there's always a duty frigate in the, in the dockyard at Sydney who's there for any contingency on anything, not necessarily at Sydney Hobart. What happens 
normally would be that if there was an issue, then it would go to the Australian Search and Rescue Centre, and they would then uh, give the appropriate uh, aircraft or send them, which would generally be civilian helicopters. So they were obviously um, banking on uh, on civilian helicopters at the time. John Stanley, once again, the competing race yachts ranged in size from the 24-metre Sayonara to the 10-metre Vera Miller. Can you tell us something about your yacht, Winston Churchill, something about its crew and what sort of equipment it had on board? Well, the boat, Winston Churchill, of course, um, was in the first race and um, designed and built by Percy Covendale uh, and uh, was a 51-foot Huon Pine boat that uh, was uh, in the first race and quite a few others. Um, in uh, 96, uh, Richard uh, Winning had a look at the boat. It was up for sale. He fell in love with the boat and he wanted to restore it and uh, to do a Hobart race. So that was the uh, the road we went down and uh, we did the 97 Hobart race. And uh, we, uh, it was a, a relatively quiet race to Hobart standards. Um, and then he wanted to do it again the next year. So uh, we proceeded the next year to do it again. But unfortunately, uh, we never got there. But the uh, the crew um, were some of the members of the previous race. And then a couple of uh, people that uh, I'd picked up or had asked to do the race with uh, who were very experienced hands and had done a lot of sailing. Um, the boat was um, very well put together. Um, we um, we had two life rafts. The life rafts are something that that you assume uh, up to standard, and that's another story. But one that we ended up in, um, unfortunately, was even rubbish. But that was proven later on at the uh, the inquest, and um, consequently was taken off the market. But they they weren't testing them as they did 20 years previous. And uh, so standards did drop a little bit. But uh, sadly, yes, I did. Uh, I've lost three good mates. And uh, that was uh, an experience that I won't forget, unfortunately. Now, we shall return to that. A very sad outcome amongst many from this race indeed. And perhaps that leads us into the deterioration in conditions. And by the early morning of the 27th of December, of course, severe weather conditions had struck the fleet off the southeast Australian coast and a very uh, strong and unusually strong low-pressure system had developed and this resulted in unseasonal midsummer weather, including snow even across parts of southeast Australia. And this built into a very strong storm with winds in excess of 120 kilometres an hour and gusts of up to 150 kilometres per hour. So by now, of course, distress calls started to come in. And later that afternoon, the Navy was asked to join in the rescue effort. So Nick Trimmer, can you briefly describe what is required for helicopters to be able to render assistance at sea in, in, in day and night conditions like this? Minimums by day, you'll need a winch-capable helicopter. You'll need a trained and qualified crew, which as a minimum is a pilot, a winch operator. and a rescue swimmer to go down the uh, cable uh, as the bare minimum. By night, it gets a whole heap 
more complex. So you need all the day requirements, as well as you'll need a minimum of a four axis autopilot uh, fitted to your helicopter that has a auto hover and auto approach and apart capability. Uh, generally, by the nature of it, and especially uh, civil ops, it's mandatory to pilot ops and the certification of those aircraft. Uh, and the crew has to be qualified and current and proficient in uh, night water rescue. And the actual hovering over the water involves a lot of instrument flying skills, not uh, visual reference skills. So uh, the night, night re rescue capability is a whole lot more complex and expensive to maintain. Shane, actually, you were the air crewman. Can you briefly tell us about how you and your comrades conducted rescues of sailors from the sea or, or indeed from life rafts in conditions such as this? Uh, sure. Uh, so in, in previous rescues that I've been involved in, there's usually a degree of certainty about what you're flying into. Uh, you usually know where the vessel is, the, the condition of occupants, where you need to take them after you recover them into the aircraft. Um, so you can to a degree, pre-prepare for what you need to do because you have an idea of what you're, you're going to confront. Uh, but in this case, we were tasked with searching an area. There was no guarantee that we were even going to become a rescue asset. Uh, so we were just focused on trying to find missing yachts. Uh, we knew they were out there somewhere. We just didn't know exactly where. So um, we spent several hours conducting visual and electronic search. Um, we'd come across a few vessels that had been abandoned the previous night. Um, and seeing the state of the vessels and the way that they're moving around in the in the sea conditions, I knew that if we were going to have to recover any survivors, uh, it was going to be a, a fairly risky exercise. Um, you know, there's always so many variables that it's um, nearly impossible to, to define exactly how you're going to conduct the rescue um, until you arrive on the scene. But I was starting to think that um, it would be best to do a winch from the life raft or from the water because um, winching to the deck would have been extremely hazardous for everyone involved. And, uh, and looking at the size of the waves and the overall angry state of the ocean, it was not much of a, a better option really going into the water because either way I was going to have to go down the wire if we found someone. John Stanley, could you tell us a bit about how the situation looked on board Winston Churchill as darkness approached? How were the conditions sort of affecting the crew and what sort of planning were you doing? What concerns were you thinking about? Well, the situation had deteriorated from um, 12 o'clock on and, and the decision at 12 o'clock um, was, do we push on through this front or do we run with the front? And to turn around and to go back, the sea conditions, the way that we looked at it, were possibly worse than punching on through into it and through the front. So we, uh, around, I think it was about two o'clock in the afternoon, had uh, lashed the mainsail, everything down. We, uh, we had a storm jib up, which was on the inner forestay, which is well inboard, and, and the boat was very comfortable. So we proceeded to sail south in that situation with um, two on deck steer and uh, someone by his side and uh, the rest were downstairs just to um, take it easy while they could 
until such time as it was their turn. Um, and then towards the afternoon, around about three o'clock, I was contemplating maybe we the boat was possible. It was a long keeled boat and it was quite possible that we could hove too, which is what they used to do with that designer boats in the old days. But the sea conditions were on retrospect, the sea conditions were that bad that you wouldn't have been able to hope to. The biggest problem was the rogue wave, which all the old sailing skippers talked about and um, Alan Payne talked about it in a speech in 1982, where he'd taken all the um, all the measurements from the Bass Strait oil rigs and said, one day these conditions will happen. Well, they did. And, and the rogue wave, which is one in 15 is, you know, it's seven times bigger than the average wave. And sadly, at about three o'clock or 3.30 in the afternoon, um, I heard a call from one of the boys. Richard was steering and one of the boys said, watch this one. Well, as he's gone up the face of this wave to then get over to the top of it, it has broken, picked up the boat, which is 25 tonne, and slammed it into the face of the previous wave. And so um, there was uh, 15, when I got on deck to untangle the boys, because they were tangled up in the backstay, uh, 15 foot of the bulwarks were gone and we were taking water. And that's uh, that's when we all hell broke loose. So we then proceeded to, uh, you know, uh, try and get a May Day out. But what first of all was to, so I said to Richard, turn the motor on so I can get the pump going. But sadly, the batteries were on that lured side and the water came in over the top of the batteries, so we didn't weren't able to get the, uh, the engine started. The pump would have handled it to a certain degree, but we couldn't start the motor. So, uh, so that was it. And so then we had to work out the uh, next procedure, which was um, put the uh, life rafts over. Tansy Lee, as we've heard, the conditions are deteriorating rapidly and markedly, and you're amongst the crew of the first Navy helicopters to get airborne. Can you talk about the work of Shark 05 and your helicopter, Shark 20? Yeah, it was sometime uh, late afternoon, early evening when Shark 05 got airborne. Um, their aircraft was already serviceable, and off they went. Um, we were all called in off leave, of course. And my crew, we had just wait a short while before my aircraft, Shark 20, was um, was serviceable. And, uh, and off we went. Uh, Shark 05 was down there first. They refueled at Marimbula and they went out. And basically, they were, they were saying that there's a lot of radio chatter going along. It was quite confused. Lots of Maydays going out. And... The thing that I think has already been touched on is that, you know, you, you can't see the yachts because it was pitch black. You didn't quite know where they were because you might have been given a position from somebody, but that they would have moved on by then. And the radars that we have on board at low level, they're okay, but in those sort of sea states, they were just picking up all the sea clutter. And so you are lucky that if you got a return from an actual yacht, so Shark 05 carried on uh, searching. They actually came back twice to refuel. And they tried one rescue of one, but they deemed it far too dangerous for the person going down on the uh, winch wire because you know, the conditions were horrendous. 
when we went out later that evening, and you know, we went down to Marimbula. Uh, conditions were quite reasonable, refueled at Marimbula. And then we went out to the uh, sort of the search area looking for the Sword of Orion. And it was pretty obvious just after leaving Marimbula that the cloud base was, that was lowering quickly. Winds were really strengthening. And yeah, and there was driving rain. So we knew you know, that the conditions that we were told about were actually there. Mr. Tansy, a quick follow up. In these conditions, how do you find? A vessel. How do you find a yacht? Uh, I think there was a great element of luck involved when we found Sword of Iran, which I'll I'll go into a bit later. Um, if you're lucky enough to uh, get a, a recent position, obviously, if you talk to the yacht, they might give you a recent position. But in those days, you know, we didn't have GPS or anything like that. We were just hoping we could go on the sort of bearing and, and a distance, and the higher up you go, then the radar is, is better, but then you're in and then you can't see anything, of course. Yeah, so I suppose that the answer is with difficulty. Indeed. Well, that brings us, Rick Neville, to the Seahawks, which are about to join the rescue. So can you take up the story now as the Sea Kings return to the shore? Yeah, sure. Uh, the Sea Kings uh, were operating down at Marimbula uh, doing their thing, and uh, Newcastle was the duty frigate, and so their flight was the first Seahawk uh, to be dispatched uh, on the evening of the uh, 27th and join the search. Our aircraft was put on alert uh, at about uh, 2000 on the 27th, and uh, my maintenance team worked until about one in the morning and then recommenced work at five in the morning to get uh, my aircraft ready to go. And uh, we left on the morning of the 28th uh, at about 9.30, and arrived at Marimbula, which for a, a regional airfield was extremely busy. I think, uh, if I remember, there was about seven aircraft in the circuit all uh, lining up to land and resisting to land, and there was another four or five uh, on the ground trying to get airborne. So uh, it was a very busy situation. Uh, once we arrived at Marimbula, we contacted Australian Search and Rescue uh, they gave us some tasking and we proceeded on task uh, in the morning uh, to our allocated search area. And in the meantime, uh, the Sea Kings had uh, been working all night and uh, were, had, had the day off and uh, the other Seahawk uh, was in a pretty similar situation. So we were, uh, us and the civilian helicopters were working during uh, that day. So, John Stanley, a moment ago you talked about the rogue wave and conditions deteriorating quickly. So can you relate to us what happened when you decided to abandon ship? Yeah, well, um, the uh, the intake of water was reasonably fast. I would say um, that it was up to deck level, probably within... 15 to 20 minutes, but we knew that the experienced guys in the in the crew knew that you had to wait till till the boat was as slow as possible so that the decks were awash before you threw the life rafts over the side because they're tethered to the side, they inflate, you jump into them and, um, and then... Uh, 
then you're away. But if you if your boat's moving fast or too fast and you throw those over and they inflate, the tether can break and you can lose the raft. So we knew we had to be decks awash, completely stopped, which is what we did. And there was two rafts up both and deployed and everyone jumped in. I was basically responsible for two people on board, the young young uh, Michael Reiner and John Gibson, who I'd personally invited on the trip. So I made sure that uh, they were in the rafts, one each, one went into either either, either raft and uh, I jumped in with John into the smaller one. Um, and then um, we proceeded to uh, take off with, uh, with haste. Um, and the distressed uh, beacon was in the other raft. So, but unbeknowing, it was broken to everybody or to us especially, we, didn't, we weren't there with them. So we were under the impression that uh, their signals were going out and that we, were, we, we would be in the vicinity of where they were. Um, but uh, of course, later on, everything changed completely once once we'd uh, been knocked upside down and inside out sort of thing, which was uh, a nightmare at, uh, to say the least. I mean, in our raft, we employed the drag over the side um, that went out uh, in that incidence of letting it out. It, it, it opened up and caught uh, John Gibson's finger and it went to the bone. So he was bleeding from that. but. It was out there, and it really helped. Once that did get employed, it was it was excellent. But um, it only lasted 20 minutes, and it broke, and we were off like a beach ball again. So we were at the mercy of the sea, and, uh, and we received a few uh, capsizes, and then eventually uh, we ended up upside down and cutting the hole for air and various things, and that went right through the night. So you know, we got into that raft at about four o'clock in the afternoon, and and uh, Rick and the boys came along the following night at around about seven or seven o'clock or something like that from memory. So it was quite an ordeal. And in that ordeal, um, sadly, I lost three mates. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's another story again, of course. But uh, uh, yeah, what can you say? The only thing I, in the back of my mind all the time was that what we did get into as far as I was concerned, was even rubbish. And uh, consequently, once we went down, I got invited to go down to Tasmania for all the testing and that we did prove that it was, wasn't was up to speed and uh, it should never have been on the market for a Category 1 event. So that was, I mean, everything did change at that inquest and, and for better reasons. Um, I think everyone had taken their eye off the ball a little bit in regards to construction and safety and and then the weather bureau the weather bureau themselves came out you know after that and all, all of a sudden they're telling us that uh, you, you always got to allow a 40 percent stronger <clears throat> when we when we forecast a gust you've got to allow 40 percent stronger well none of us had ever heard of that before and so everyone was sort of covering themselves a little bit i believe but um, but it was all for the better and it's like everything it, it takes a disaster sometimes for people to get their act together. Uh, Indeed, yeah. an unfortunate truth. Rick Neville, John's talked about the conditions in the life raft and the fact that the 
the stress beacon wasn't working. So how did you locate Winston Churchill's crew and how did you coordinate inside your aircraft? How did you actually coordinate the work inside the helicopter in order to to affect the rescue? Uh, we had left uh, HMAS Newcastle where we'd landed uh, for fuel and uh, that is a story in itself. But we'd eventually got airborne at about uh, on sunset and uh, did a quick search around Newcastle for a couple of radar contacts they had. And then we climbed to about 4,500 feet uh, above the storm and um, it was still sort of uh, it was sunset up there and it was a nice smooth trip home and we uh, dialed up the scene of SAR radio frequency to hear what was going on and we heard Rescue 253, which is an Air Force P-3 Orion aircraft, uh, was talking about uh, a, a light source he had spotted 60 miles to the south. So uh, we'd, we were reaching the end of our crew duty period, but uh, after we discussed it in the aircraft between the crew, that we all felt that uh, we could uh, push on through that for a short time. We uh, uh, told the P3 that we could head down to the south. So that was a 60-mile transit, and uh, on our way down there, we discussed all uh, of the aspects that we considered that might arise during the rescue and um, briefed ourselves. We'd already tried out the uh, aircraft's uh, automatic flight control system, which flies it and holds it in the hover that was working nicely at that time uh so within the aircraft the crew uh we were ready to go in the meantime uh we were talking to the orion aircraft and this is where the military side of our training really comes in handy because it, he's an anti-submarine warfare aircraft like us and so we exercise with uh, uh air force anti-submarine aircraft regularly and we slipped straight into anti-submarine mode and, and organised things like air-to-air TACANs, height separations, radio frequencies. He held our SAR for us. All those things that we would normally do uh, when we're out there conducting operations, uh, we did automatically. And that was probably, from my point of view, one of the highlights of that particular rescue was the coordination between us and the Air Force aircraft. So coming right down to the, the tin tacks, Nick Trimmer, you were the pilot can you talk to us about how you approached the raft and and how you kept in the hover for the rescue when we uh located the light source in the water we um did what we call an on top to get it into the aircraft system which then enabled us to conduct an automatic approach uh to the hover to that datum uh so once all set up, the aircraft had the capability of, that's why it needs a four-axis autopilot to uh, establish itself uh, down in the hover near the, the, well, the source, the light source that we wanted to investigate. Um, we at the time were aiming for a 60-foot hover, which uh, you're never quite sure how big the waves are going to be. So we came to an automatic 60-foot hover, uh, the aircraft has the capability of what's called crew hover, where I can pass uh, control of the aircraft in as much as the crewman in the back can drive the aircraft around pretty much 10 knots in any direction um, to uh, try and position ourselves over the uh, survivors. Now, throughout the 
whole evolution. Um, I never saw the survivors, the whole, uh, from the pilot side, everything's conducted on instruments. There's nothing uh, visual outside. So the we were trying to use the uh, uh, auto hover functions and what we eventually discovered is that the, the high winds, whilst they were good because the aircraft wasn't really hovering, we were flying, which gave us uh, good excess power. Um, the high uh, sea state meant that uh, while the aircraft's trying to hold 60 foot above the water, um, we couldn't see the big waves coming through and the aircraft's going up and down every now and then bigger waves would come through. The aircraft would go to max continuous power uh, and effectively the wave would be catching us and because hovering on instruments in the front, I'm just trying to make sure it stays in position and at a set height. And so the wave would start catching us, the aircraft to go to max continuous, um, couldn't uh, exceed the weight at that time. And so the autopilot would actually trip out and that's uh, meant that we were having to intervene and hand fly uh, the aircraft whenever a big set went through that caused the uh, autopilot to trip out. So we had a fair bit going on in the front. Uh, we would try resetting and eventually uh, we managed to get the task done by, uh, I had to keep overriding the autopilot and the height function. So when it would go to max continuous power, I'd hold it there and just be watching the rat out go down and hoping that it would, because uh, you can't see, just hoping that the rat out would stop before it got to uh, zero and the wave hit us. And then, of course, as soon as the wave goes through underneath the aircraft, and the Seahawk was a very powerful helicopter. It's a wonderful machine. Uh, we'd instantly be a couple hundred foot uh, above, obviously going down the backside of the, the wave and climbing. And we'd have to, I'd have to override it, get it descending back down. Uh, but you had to come back down fairly cautiously because you were never sure if you were going back down in a crest and about to go into the next big wave. And so, John had talked about the random nature of waves. You were never sure whether one of the random big ones was going to come through. It generally seemed that you know, some big sets would go through that we'd have to get over and then we could get back down and get some reasonable periods where we could get um, Shane, our rescue swimmer, uh, into, the, into the life raft and uh, affect the rescues. Um, so it was a... Highly challenging state, it was all instrument flying, so I'm just looking at the instruments, trying to keep the aircraft in position whilst at the same time keeping it within limits so the autopilot didn't trip out. Uh, whilst the whole time as a crew we were working to try and get uh, our rescue swimmer both over to the life raft and stay there for a while whilst he can uh, uh, rescue the survivors. John Stanley, this is all going on above you, so to speak. What were people in your raft thinking and saying about what was about to happen at that time? Well, it was only uh, John and myself in the raft at this stage because we'd lost the other three, sadly. Um, and when um, Shane came down the first time, um, he was about to jump into the raft and I said, watch out, there's no bottom in it. And then consequently he jumped in and went through the bottom. But 
that wasn't no big deal, but he came up and he said, who's going first? And so I said, take John, because he, his finger had been cut and they'd been bleeding for some time. Um, so uh, he put the harness around John and uh, they went, but they, uh, they went sideways. And I thought, well, that's very unusual. But as, as it's been told, uh, the red old control tripped out and uh, they'd sort of lost, lost control a little bit. So they finally uh, went through the water for some time and then they went up and I thought, oh, well, they're right. And then, um, and then it was a bit too dangerous to send Shane back down again. So they sent the wire down, which I was quite happy with, um, and, it, and they landed it spot on. And I put the, uh, the harness on, but unbeknown to me, I'd put my hand uh, also through one of the ropes of the raft. And as we were going up, I got up about, I think it was about 20 feet or something, and I noticed I was pulling the raft up with me, and I thought, this is disastrous. So I put my hands up in the air and went back into the ocean, and, of course, the boys didn't know what was going on. But to uh, to their credit, they sent the uh, the ring back down again and uh, put it on, and up I went, and uh, I was a very relieved man when I got into that uh, craft, <clears throat> to say the least. Indeed. And Rick, Rick Neville, what... What was your strategy? I think we're all a bit too busy to come up with some sort of strategy. It was, uh, we were flat out. I mean, uh, Nick described uh, uh, what he was doing while he was flying and I was uh, backing him up by calling out powers and, and heights and attitudes and uh, all of those sorts of things that, that you do. And in the back, at, by this time, uh, Shane had... Uh, come out of the water we, and we hadn't put him back in. So he was driving the winch and while Abbott, the other air crewman, was um, a, using the crew hover and conning the aircraft, telling where, telling Nick where to go, like ahead two feet, back one foot, uh, this sort of business, uh, to maintain a position over the survivors. So that was going on. And uh, one thing that hasn't been touched on, uh, we had two of our maintenance sailors in the back of the aircraft as well. So my the chief maintenance sailor, Dave Lardo and Tomo Tomasini were in the back of the aircraft as we brought them back from the Newcastle. And uh, so they were sitting there eyes wide open and all they could see was the winch wire just going from one side of the door to the other as the aircraft violently moved around. And it really was quite violent and uh, it, in there for some time. And so that rescue, what in good conditions you could probably be five or ten minutes to pick up two guys out of the water. That took us forty minutes, and uh, we got out of there at about twenty two forty. So um, uh, twenty two twenty it was, and then it took us forty minutes to get home from there, eighty miles. So uh, it it was a it was extremely busy, uh, extremely demanding. And uh, as everybody has said, it was uh, um, the roughest conditions that they've ever done anything like that in, that's for sure, and particularly at night. Shane Paisley, can you take up the story from your perspective as you're about to be lowered into the sea in these conditions to affect this rescue? Yeah, and as, um, as Rick mentioned, uh, we'd re refuelled on Newcastle and the plan was to, uh, to head back towards Nowra uh, for the night and get some rest and then reattack the, the next day if we were needed. Um, so I think I was starting to, to mentally relax a little bit. I was in the sensei seat on the radar on the way, just uh, navving our way home. Uh, 
uh, when we got the call from the uh, the P3 to uh, divert south and look at the uh, the light source. So all of a sudden it was it was game on again. So I was um, all the guys were trying to get the aircraft into the good position over the top of the uh, the life raft. I was getting back into my harness, putting my fins on, stowing my helmet, and uh, basically getting the cabin ready. Um, so we could uh, open the door and do the do, do the winch, and uh, so while Abbott uh, connected me up to the the wire and and uh, I sat in the door, and uh, and looked down, and uh, we turned the big searchlight on under the aircraft, and uh, all the, the normal training nights of you know, nice moonlit nights at, in Jarvis Bay and a flat ocean, it was just so different from that. It was it was phenomenal. Um, you know, the the life raft was felt like it was almost touching the underside of the aircraft one second and then it was 70 feet below and blowing away at a great rate and knots the next. Um, the, the usually bright spotlight, you could hardly sort of see anything because of the amount of sea spray and, and it was um, it was quite horrendous conditions. But um, you know, once we got the, uh, the aircraft into position and the guys were working really hard to, to stay on top of the, of the life raft, um, you know, Wall uh, basically winched me up outside the aircraft, and then uh, I was on my way down towards the towards the life raft. And uh, going from the red lighting of the aircraft into the the relative light below the aircraft, um, I sort of got a bit night blind fairly quickly. And uh, and ultimately, I didn't realise I was nearly in the water until I got smashed by the first wave that comes through. I guess just a, a quick follow up on that, Shane. You mentioned how this is not quite like when you train, but did your training equip you for this or did you have to, to some extent, make it up as you went along? I think the process is pretty much always the same and we stick to the same routine and we have the same uh, processes and coordination between the crew. So there's nothing out of the ordinary. You just have to work a lot harder and a lot faster. Um, to deal with things because because everything's happening so much more quickly. And Nick Trimmer, from your perspective, after recovering the the men from the raft, what happened next? Uh, after we worked out that we had everyone that there was in that raft, because you weren't ever sure when you get there exactly how many there were, uh, we headed back to Marimbula. Now we were heading back to Marimbula. The diversion to do the rescue added a couple of hours to when we were originally meant to get back to Marimbua. Uh, so heading back in there a few hours later than we originally planned, uh, as we approached Marimbua, we found out that it was uh, fogged in and pretty much having used all our fuel to uh, do the rescue, we had uh, no alternate options other than getting into Marimbua, which uh, fortunately flying an aircraft like the Sea Hawk, which had a brilliant tactical system, um, train crew be able to do helicopter controlled approaches and the like. Uh, we were able to uh, get in into Marimbua in the low vis conditions and uh, uh, get the uh, survivors to medical aid. Tansy Lee, for some broader context, could you describe for us, maybe give us a bit of a summary of the number of rescues that took place during this period? Uh, the actual number I wouldn't know, but I know that sort of 55 people were, were rescued at the time. Um, 
of the 115 yachts that started, 44 made it through to Hobart. And out of the other 71, uh, five, I think, sank, seven were abandoned. So, yeah, it was pretty catastrophic down there. The actual number of people picked up, um, you could probably argue there wasn't that many on that first night because of, of the conditions. But when they sort of started abating, then the, the Navy ships, plus all the other helicopters, civilian helicopters started coming in by day then. And, and, and they picked a lot of people up. You've probably all seen the image of the one civilian helicopter by day when, they, you know, the difficulty they had. Um, well, obviously, nobody was filming us at night. But uh, I was just backing up what Nick and Rick were saying about the conditions. Yeah, we, we were finding it. You know, equally as uh, as they were. John Stanley, you've you've mentioned that very tragically in Winston Churchill, you lost three crewmates and friends: Mike Bannister, John Dean, and Jim Lawler. But from a yachting perspective, what was the legacy then of the 1998 Sydney to Hobart yacht race? Mm. Um, well, at the end of the day, it was. It was a case of, uh, um, as I said previously, um, yeah, one of our great yachting designers, uh, Alan Payne, had warned um, about the conditions in Bass Strait and to always be aware of the situation. Back then when he did it, which was 1982, he was more concerned about yacht construction. So, and he and, and he was rightfully rightfully so. Um, but in that time, since uh, the yacht construction had had um, done their uh, homework, and the yachts today uh, are adequate, they're not. Uh, they're nothing's adequate in those conditions. I mean, no one needs to be in those conditions. So, with modern technology and everything that we have got at our, our disposal. That should never happen again. Um, the legacy is, uh, oh, it's a tragedy, really. Uh, but it was, I guess, somewhere along the line, um, people do relax, uh, sailors, administrators, everybody. But uh, it was um, not so much a lesson, but it was just a it was a sad reality, but was also a marvellous recovery by everyone involved in uh, in the civilian side of uh, what what did happen, and does show um, that uh, we're capable of doing those things. Um, uh, I don't ever want to see uh, people caught in those conditions again. The rafts definitely won't be there, so um, hopefully it doesn't happen again. And uh, as uh, one of my old yachting friends who's since gone upstairs said to me, Stephen, that was another stitch in the rich tapestry of life. Well, it's one I'll probably never forget. Well, before we conclude, can I ask each of you for some final thoughts about this significant event in your lives, but also in the Royal Australian Navy's history? First off, Tansy Lee. Yeah, I'll just pick up on just a, a quick couple of points, if I may. Um, on the 29th, I think the conditions had abated and we went out searching yet again. And, uh, and we found two of the deceased members from the Winston Churchill, which we brought into the helicopter and took them back to Marimbula. Um, 
And one of the other issues which people should be aware of, besides the degree of difficulty of trying to hold hovers at night, etc., one of our biggest enemies is salt. And certainly my aircraft, we got salted up quite badly on A, the rotor blades, and B, inside the engine, which means basically the helicopter demands more power and my poor engines couldn't give it because they were salting up as well. The salt adheres itself you know, to any sort of moving parts. Um, so that was that one. Yeah, the, I compare Sydney Hobart to when I did the Fastnet race, you know, some years before. And the thing that I remember about the Fastnet was that, although we flew lots of hours, it was all daytime stuff. Whereas here on the Sydney Hobart, you know, the degree of difficulty goes up tenfold trying to do it at night. And, and this is where you've got to, you know, think about the training that we have. Uh, the crew cooperation that you have with each other, you know, it, it's people have prepared you to do things like that, probably not as bad as that. But your training kicks in, your crew kick in, and, uh, yeah, it was a pleasure to fly with them. And Rick Neville, uh, a final comment from you. Um, this interview has, has brought back lots of memories, and uh, I don't think... Uh, uh, Nick and I and uh, Pashas have set, sat down since uh, that weekend or, or since that time and, and gone through this. So just looking back on the quality of the people that were in that aircraft, Nick, uh, Wal Abbott and Shane uh, Pashley, it were magnificent. And uh, uh, as the boss of most of those guys at the time, I was then and then probably even more so now extremely proud of of that crew they did a, a fantastic job in unbelievable conditions and pulled it off and actually how about from your perspective yeah i think uh, as pretty much as everyone has mentioned we were really fortunate that we had some of the best equipment the seahawk uh, was a great great tool for us and and i'm glad that the navy's continued that legacy and is still operating the latest version of that aircraft um, the amount of training and the, the, the quality of the training that we undertake daily um, really put us in a good place to be able to really take it to the limits in in, in this um, event. Um, and for me, yeah, I've done nearly 40 years now, and for me, this it was ultimately a, probably the highlight of my career being involved in something like this, and uh, to have worked alongside so many. Uh, Courageous people doing some amazing work um, was a, has been a real honour for me too. Thanks. How about you, Nick Trimmer? When this occurred, I was quite a junior Navy pilot at the time. I had 400 hours on the Sea Orca at that particular stage. Uh, and here it is 22 years later. I've been flying military and rescue helicopters the whole time since. and that. Uh, that night remains the most challenging rescue I've yet had to do. And uh, the success of achieving it, I put down to uh, two main factors, the um, high quality of training that I received going through as a Navy pilot. You just can't beat it. I see it both from what I got through and I'm now on the outside working as a civil pilot, that just high quality. And without that, we wouldn't have been able to get the job done. 
and also the teamwork that occurred that been thrown as a group into that situation and everyone doing their job and doing it well we got the got the job done uh, if anyone hadn't stepped up to the mark that night then as a team we wouldn't have been able to do it yet we uh, we did John Stanley a final thought from you um, well all I can say is uh, thank God for the boys uh, for doing such a marvelous job um, Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you guys. Um, and it was, um, I guess, an act of fate. In one way, we were fortunate to have a have uh, a couple of um, couple of lights with us. And fortunately, a plane went past, and I shone, shone it at him, and he dipped his wing. And I thought, I said to John, I said, well, it could be unlucky here. And as it turned out, luck did did happen. And uh, the boys did an incredible job and it was great to catch up with them just uh, recently uh, with the helicopter being on uh, display at the museum. So uh, hopefully we'll catch up again and have another drink another day. Thank you. Indeed so. And it's important, of course, to mention that for their combined efforts during that rescue, Tansy Lee, Rick Nibble, Shane Pasha, Nick Trimmer were all awarded a group bravery citation. And in addition, of course, Shane Pasha was the recipient of the bravery medal. And in addition, as John just mentioned, you can see the helicopter Tiger 75 on permanent display at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks again to John Stanley, Tansy Lee, Rick Nibble, Shane Pashley and Nick Trimmer. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, and its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that other people can learn about the Australian Naval History Podcast Series. Goodbye for now.